We are turning in the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, um, the part that records the coming of Jesus to this earth and the things that he did while here uh, and the things that he continues to do through his church. And we're turning to a part that's called Hebrews and we're turning to chapter 9, page 12. 106 in the Church Bible. Hebrews chapter 9, and we want to read uh, the whole chapter. Uh, the book of Hebrews um, was written to people who had been Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. The Jews were also called Hebrews. Another name for them. Uh, And, of course, God had revealed himself to this people uh, throughout the Old Testament. And they had sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifices, and they were offered on an altar, uh, and they had lots of other uh, religious activities and um, actions, all of which had been revealed by God, and all of which were right in the Old Testament, all of which pointed forward to Jesus. And they were like a photograph. They were like a photograph. And when you and I uh, have the real person in our presence, We don't sit and look at a photograph. But now you see these Hebrews, they have the real person Jesus. He's come, but they're still wanting to look at the photograph. They're wanting to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices and the Old Testament way of doing things. And this chapter is urging them not to do that. So, When it talks about the first covenant, it's talking about things in the Old Testament. When it talks about the new covenant, it's talking about things now in Jesus. So let's read the passage together. The first covenant, the Old Testament, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary or place of worship. A tabernacle or tent was set up In its first room were a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was another room called the most holy place. It had the golden altar of incense and the gold ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had bought it, and the stone tablets of the covenant. That's the Ten Commandments. Above this ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the cover. But we cannot discuss these in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the first room to carry on their ministry. 
But only the high priest entered the second or inner room, and then only once a year, and never without blood, which the high priest offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place that's the way into God's presence, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration, or a photograph, for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Those sacrifices are only a matter of food and drink, and various ceremonial washings, outward regulations, applying until the time of the new order, the time of Jesus. And so now the writer says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. It's talking now about him going into heaven. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal Redemption or salvation. You see the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God without sin in other words to God how much more will that cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that 
Everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies, in other words, the photographs of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place. Every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times. Since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those you are waiting for him. Amen. How good are you with appointments? I wonder how many of us can say, I have never forgotten an appointment. I don't imagine that many of us can say that we have kept every appointment because even if we have tried to, there may well have been circumstances. Uh, a car accident uh, or a traffic jam or whatever that has prevented us keeping an appointment that we had made with someone to be somewhere at a certain time. If you go into our health centre. Uh, down. Um, uh, towards. I've forgotten where it is. Thank you. Taylor's Avenue. Taylor's Avenue. The word wouldn't come to me. Taylor's Avenue. And you go in and you're waiting to see the doctor. And there's a little screen there. And it will tell you. How many prescriptions were ordered. In the past three months. And weren't collected. And it will tell you how many appointments were made. And were not kept. And it is a huge uh, and sad waste of resources when that happens. The passage we read tonight. Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 27, 28, 29, uh, speaks of an appointment. An appointment that will have to be kept. Puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as man is appointed or destined to die once. 
And after that, the judgment. So the Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This evening I want to speak um, about, first of all, the divine appointment. And then secondly, about the divine appraisal. Thirdly, the divine answer. And fourthly, the divine appearance. Now when we use the word divine, we're referring to God. So we're thinking in the first place, and it's these headings are printed on the rear side of the order of service. We're thinking of in the first place about the appointment that God makes. Not the appointment that we make, but the appointment that God makes with each one of us. And the author of this book, um, probably one of the apostles, reminds us of an appointment that God makes for us and with us. And the point is, we will not be able to miss this appointment. Because of some unforeseen circumstance. Something that crops up that day that holds us back from keeping it. We'll not be able to phone up in the morning and put it back. Because it doesn't suit us that particular day. Or we'll not be able to cancel it. Because we're too busy that day. Or something has arisen that is very urgent. This appointment will be kept. Look at what it says. Verse 27. Just as man is appointed to die once. God has an appointment. Already set. With you. With me. With all of us. It is the day and the hour and the moment of our death. And he has ordained that and established that. And he has established the way in which we will die. Whether it is through an illness or an accident. Whether it is through uh, just our bodies wearing out. Whether when we are young or when we are old, the Bible teaches again and again, the Lord God gives life, and the Lord God takes it away. It's not an appointment that we make. That's why as a church, and as Christians, and anyone who is a biblical Christian, will say that euthanasia where people set the time of their own death, suicide, where people take their own life, and abortion, where another human takes the life of a child, all of those things are sins in the sight of God. And it's not within man's right 
It's not man's gift to determine when a person will die except in one case. And that is if someone is a murderer. The person who murders in cold blood, deliberately taking the life of another, God has entrusted to the state, to the government of the land, the right to take that person's life. That's the only time that man can set a day and an hour and a moment for another person to die. On every other occasion and circumstance, the appointment is made by God and known only to God. The divine appointment. Death is one of the great subjects in our society that is not talked about today. If you bring it up in conversation tomorrow at work, you will find people turning and trying to take up, make up a conversation with someone beside them, or they'll try and change the subject, or they'll accuse you of being morbid because they don't want to think of death. People live as if they're not going to die. Why? Because by nature, we're afraid of death. We want to avoid death. We want to live forever. We were made to live forever. Eternity, living on and on and on and on, is in the heart of every one of us. Yet death is the great reality. Someone said, one out of one dies. It's an appointment that God makes. But then let's notice, secondly, the divine appraisal. What will happen when God summons you or me to meet him through death? Well, God will appraise our lives. He will examine our lives. He will judge our lives. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that judgment, after that appraisal. Some of you are familiar with appraisal. It's the great thing, the great pain in some respects in the workplace. Constantly assessing and appraising to the point that people can't get on with their job for wondering, am I doing it right? And in an appraisal, your employer sits down with you and discusses how you're doing. He or she will commend you for what you're doing well and they will identify areas of weakness that they want you to go away and work on for the next appraisal. Now God's appraisal is not like that. It's very different. There's no opportunity to improve on our areas of weakness. There is no next time. God's appraisal of us when we die is final. His verdict on our lives. Unlike an exam, 
are unlike the driving test. We cannot sit it again in the hope of passing next time. Either we pass or we fail. And the first time. And we receive either heaven where there is eternal blessing and joy and peace and delight in God and his people forever and ever or a person is banished to the pains of hell where we're told there is unending weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this divine appraisal it is very, very important. It will determine our eternal destiny. Now that raises the all-important question. On what will God base his judgment of our lives? What are we going to be examined on? Because if we know that, then surely that puts us in a position to think about that and to take whatever action is required to put that right. Well, this judgment of our lives will be of our thoughts. That's those things that go on in our heads that we would actually be ashamed of many times if the person next to us knew about them. Our words how we've spoken. Truth lies. Lovingly, harshly. And lots of more things about our words. Our deeds. Whether they've been good or evil. Whether they have kept his commandments. And fulfilled his commandments. Or broken his commandments. In other words, he's going to examine the kind of lives we have lived in the totality of our lives. He's not going to say, how often were you at church? How often did you read the Bible? How long did you pray for? It's none of those things. How much money did you give to the church? There's many people tonight and they think those are the things that they've got to get right. But no, that's not what God is going to ask. He's going to judge us in our actions and words and thoughts, the things that we love and have loved. And he's going to do that in the light of his own perfection. And here's the question. Have our lives simply reproduced and duplicated the sin we are born with. You know what a photocopier is? You put a page in. And it copies exactly what is there. Well our lives. The copy is one that is blemished by sin. That's our nature. You put it into life. And we produce the pages of our lives that come out. They are the duplication of that sin that is within us. So have our lives 
simply duplicated the sin that we're born with, that's inside us. For have our lives been changed to reflect Jesus Christ? Have our thoughts and words and actions been those that honour and reveal him? That's the appraisal that God is going to make. Let's notice then thirdly the answer, the divine answer or the provision that God has made. I trust you're saying by this stage no one, no one in this room, no one in this world is able to live like this. None of us can actually of ourselves avoid being the photocopy of what is inside our hearts. No one is perfect as God is. No one is holy as he is. And that is absolutely right. If you're reaching that conclusion, there is no one righteous, no not one. Every last human being is a carrier of the disease that the Bible calls sin. This disease, we don't catch it from others like the flu or chickenpox, where we come into proximity with somebody who has it, and before we realise it, we have caught it. No, it's not like that. Sin is endemic. That means it is part and parcel of our very makeup. It doesn't lie dormant in our bodies, posing no danger to us. From our earliest years, the symptoms of our sin and the evidence of our sin shows itself in our lives, in ungodly living. And we live under sin's destructive power. It is not only an endemic disease, it is a killer disease. It kills. It destroys life. It cuts us off from God in time, and it will cut us off from God in eternity if we, it isn't resolved. And so of ourselves, we will never meet God's standard. And we are without hope unless God provides a way out of our sin. And wonderfully, he has. He has. Look at our text again. So, so, just as man is destined to die once, and after that the judgment so, as surely and as certainly, Christ was sacrificed once. For what purpose? To take away the sins of many people. And you see, these people, they would have known what it meant to be sacrificed. It meant to take what was blameless, in the Old Testament, it was the animal that was blameless, that had no defect, the lamb or the bird or the, the cow, uh, the heifer was taken. And what did you do with it? 
you put it to death. And you shed its blood. And its blood was the cover for sin. And you see when the writer here writes to these Jews. So Christ was sacrificed once. He's saying to them, this man who was blameless, this man who was without fault, without a wrong thought, a wrong word, without a sinful action, this man whose life was completely pleasing to God, what happened? It was sacrificed. It was cut off. His life was taken from him. He was nailed to a cross and his blood was shed. And then as we read uh, in Hebrews 9, on the basis of that blood shed, he went back into heaven and he said, Father, I died for the sins of the many people. And you see, that is God's answer. That is God's remedy. To our sin. God's remedy to our sin. Is not a self help program. <coughs> Tidy your life up. Try and do better. It's not a program which says. Go to church. And tick this box and that box. Do this and do that. Keep this and keep that. Don't do this and don't do that. No you see God's remedy. Is a person. God's remedy is his own son coming to earth, becoming a person and living a sinless life in a human body. Living under every law of God and keeping that law perfectly. And then it being that life being sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. That is the divine answer. That's the remedy. That's the cure that God has provided for sinners. The many that will come will experience forgiveness will experience their sins taken away. If you come in repentance, if you come in faith, turning from your sin and acknowledging it and recognizing it and then saying, Jesus, you died for this sin, then your sins will be taken away, forgiven, on the basis that Jesus died to take away the sins of many people. Refuse Christ. Turn from Christ. Try to do it some other way. And you will not stand. Before God's appraisal. You will be found wanting. The divine appointment. The divine appraisal. The divine answer. And then finally and briefly. The divine appearance. The divine appearance. Christ who has come once and been sacrificed for the sins of many people 
He will come again. He is coming again. The world mocks and scoffs at that idea. But that is what the closing statement of our text says here in Hebrews chapter 9. He will appear. Christ will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And you see what the writer's wanting to do here is he's wanting to encourage those now who do believe in the Christ. Who have had their sins forgiven through him. Who have met the real person. But you see, there's a temptation to go back to the photograph. And to go back to the old way of doing things. And these Christians who've met the Christ, they've been mocked and laughed at by their family and their friends and their neighbours. And that will happen to you and to me if we profess Christ. And as those who profess Christ... And these people are saying, is it really worth it? Is the photograph not enough? And the writer says, no. No. The photograph is finished. It's the person, the person who will appear a second time. And he is going to come to uh, bring salvation, that is to bring deliverance to all those who are waiting for him. In other words, he's urging Christians, don't turn from Christ. Don't turn away to anything else. Don't turn away for an easier existence. Don't turn away to any other religion or any other way of salvation that the world offers you. The Christ that you believed in is the Christ who's coming again. And he's going to deliver you from this world that is precious. Hold on. Look forward, not backwards. Look upward and onward to the coming of Christ. Await his appearing. And tonight, if you're not a Christian, and tonight the Holy Spirit of God is drawing you to Christ in repentance and faith, know that you will experience opposition as a new Christian. And you will be mocked, and you will be laughed at, but remember the Christ who has saved you will appear a second time to deliver you. And all those who are waiting for him. Don't turn back. Don't give up. Don't give in to the pressures around you. The divine appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die. The divine appraisal. After that the judgment. The divine answer. 
In the light of that judgment, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. The divine appearance. He will appear a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Amen. Let's pray our heads. Let's pray. We thank you, Almighty God, for your great salvation that you have provided in the Lord Jesus Christ, a salvation that we do not deserve. We deserve to meet you on the day of judgment, this day that you appoint, and we deserve to be cast from your presence into the pains of hell forever and ever because of our sin against you. But you are gracious and you are loving and you are merciful and you have cast your son on the cross into hell and he took the pains of hell upon himself not because he had sinned but because of the sin of many people for whom he died. Lord God, help us to lay hold of him who is the answer to our sin and help us to hold on to him day by day. Help us not to forsake him for anything else or anyone else, but to know that in him and in him alone we have the forgiveness of sins and we have the assurance of eternal salvation. He is coming again. Help us to wait for his coming, to look for his coming, to be ready for his coming, to be busy until his coming, busy in the things of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.